Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 25th episode of Mac PFD Spark. Today we will be listening to two discussions on evidence and research. First, we will have the opportunity to listen to Dr. Lara Varpio discuss ways of knowing and the nature of evidence in the post-truth era. Next, we will hear a brief virtual discussion from Dr. Jeff Norman about the founding of medical education and med-ed research. Please enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this podcast. And I am delighted to have Laura Varpio, Dr. Laura Varpio, again from Services University in the US and an adjunct scientist here at our merit unit here in Faculty Health Sciences. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the ways of knowing. Now, this is kind of an odd topic to cover in faculty development type uh, podcast. But I think that at the core of it, as people who work in and live in a scientific world, I think we need to wrestle with what it is that we consider evidence, what it is that we consider the truth. I think right now in the, some people call it the post-truth era, it's especially important to talk about what is news, what is fake news, what is, what is truth, misinformation, disinformation, meaningful, tactical, political moves are being made on social media platforms and the world has just changed in the way that we relate to the truth. So I think that breaking it all down and coming back to the core idea of some of the big terms that you hear about when you're, you know, at 4am in a dorm room talking about epistemology, ontology, those are things that like, you know, like we, we, we philosophize about when we're doing our undergraduate degrees, but do we come back to them as scientists? Do we come back to them as clinicians? And do we actually think really hard about how it is that we know what we're doing is the right thing? And I think that that's the conversation I want to have with you today, because I think it can really help us develop as scholars, as scientists, as clinicians, as teachers, if we center ourselves a little bit. I'm excited to have this chat with you, Teresa. We're going to have a great time. Multi-syllabic words are always fun <laughs> <laughs> to say on a podcast. But yeah, Don't I ask mean, me to spell them. That's I know, I right? <laughs> good thing spell check is pretty good, right? Amen, sister. Yep. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about, a little bit about that because I think that like we've talked previously about like philosophies of science and things like that. But I mean, I think at the core of it, there's all different kinds of ways of knowing, right? And knowing if something is true, knowing if something's false is, is actually more of an art than a science. I think you're right, Teresa. And I think one of the things that I think is really important in our modern era is one of the things that I find often underpinning some of our challenges, some of our political issues, and but also our understanding of science is that we all don't come at reality in the exact same way. When you are a bench scientist or someone in a clinical space who's working with this patient or with this particular genetic makeup or this particular pharmaceutical test, when you're in a laboratory space, you can control a lot of variables. You can say that under all of these conditions, 
X causes Y. But that laboratory space is really artificial. Even, you know, clinicians know that when you see diabetes in a clinical description versus seeing a diabetic patient or two or three, those patients present differently, but they all have a, same, a similar underlying condition. But the, the presentation of it, the lived experience of it is different. We could say the same thing about something as obvious and benign as a road. Once upon a time, somebody decided we needed a road between city A and city B. And they looked at the geography and they probably, I hope, considered who was living there and where animals were migrating and all those sorts of factors, uh, waterways and such, their technology capabilities and said, okay, given all of these factors, we're going to put the road between A and B here. But when they did that, things happened, right? Because if you were far away from the road, you became somebody who had challenges gaining access. If the people who put down the road where there weren't thinking about populations who already lived there, maybe you were putting a road right through a very important space in their culture, but maybe you were blind to that. I truly believe that road probably went there for the best of, you know, I would like to believe it went there for the best of intentions, but it has ramifications. And I think that's very true when we start to think about reality today. Yes, like nobody's saying there's no reality. We, you know, this is our space. This is where we live. But our experiences of it are very different. And those experiences of it can be different for a variety of reasons. I don't want to get into all the reasons here, but I think the important part is, is that to say that this X here, this phenomenon, this concept is true forever and ever and for everyone, it's just not going to hold water anymore because it's not true for everyone. It's different for everyone. So at best, we can say it's true under these conditions for these kinds of people in these kinds of circumstances. But that's a very contextually dependent true. So if we're thinking about what is information, I think what we're in, one of the things our, our community, our culture is dealing with right now is that there are facts, yes, but those facts are fallible. They're not always true for everyone. Yeah, and I think that that's especially the case in health professions, right? Because mm. like you said, the patient's experience, the clinician's experience, all of those are truths in, in and of themselves. Yes, there's anecdote and yes, there's hierarchies of evidence. And yes, if you have a whole bunch of people, probably there's some semblance of it holding more true. But then there's tensions that are being introduced by things like precision medicine, right? Because yep. as we know more about an individual's genetic makeup, that's going to wash out a lot of the population yeah. statistics and the techniques yeah. that we use to interpret yeah. the truth. And so we're at a very interesting crossroads right now yes. where science is flipping its own paradigm. If I know that this drug works for all these people in a large population study, but now someone in precision medicine comes along and says, well, you could get a number needed to treat of one if I know their cytochrome P450 makeup, or, you know, yeah and how they interact with the drug and you know like and that's a mind-blowing thing right like what we traditionally have done for the last couple hundred years is just say here's a drug and we're going to test it with a whole bunch of people and we're going to figure out how many people we have to treat and knowing some of them it won't work on and some of them you know we have things like number needed to treat right like these are concepts that we've evolved because we needed to use population level statistics and numbers and processing of the data in order to make a best guess as to whether or not something will work interestingly if you look at our the statistics and the statistical analyses that often lay the foundation for a lot of the things that we hold as scientists or as clinicians to be true all of those statistics, right? The definition of a statistical question is a question that has more than one answer, right? That's part of the foundational understanding premises behind statistics. Statistics has confidence intervals. 
there are power calculations. What is a good p-value? A lot of that stuff, a lot of those decisions are social constructs. We decide what a sufficiently good n is. We decide what a sufficiently good p-value is. We decide how broad our confidence intervals can be to be good enough. So if that means if we decided that at one point, we can undecide it later. By the sheer definition of it all, our knowledge is temporary. And if we are in an era where a lot of different factors and social influences are coming to bear, and we're recognizing the power that those considerations hold, then we have to start recognizing that even things that we thought were objective and unbiased, well, they're not. They're decisions. And all decisions can be revisited. It's not an easy time. It isn't. I think that's why we're seeing it manifest in, you see it play out in the news and social media and in our daily lives, right? People are are wrestling with exactly the tensions between what we know about individuals and what we know about the populations. And we know inherently as people that what you say for everyone may not actually work for me. And we see that every day in healthcare. We see it every day in education, right? Right. Right. So I think that that's really what people are, are wrestling with. And I think that that understanding that and acknowledging that we need to diversify the way that we think about ways of knowing that we have to acknowledge that a great qualitative study will give you very different information than a great quantitative study. RCT has mm -hmm. its role, but genomics testing and PCR, massive PCR tests that actually help you with customizing someone's genome and then picking the right tailored custom drug for them has its role as well. Now we have to acknowledge all of these different perspectives. One of the things I want to come back to that you mentioned earlier, Teresa, I think when your point here echoes back to it, the idea of hierarchies of evidence, I Mm -hmm. I would really love to see us dismantle that hierarchy because quite frankly, a different (laughs) kind of knowledge isn't better or worse. Uh It's different. Yeah. Different doesn't have to be a value judgment. We can respect difference and see that difference enables us to experience or see or understand, study a phenomenon from different orientations and get a better understanding because of variety. So when I go to a buffet, and Lord knows I love a good buffet, I want variety. I want to be able to choose Mm -hmm. everything or anything I want from the spaces where I'm in. Mm -hmm. And if I only have one set of ways of coming at that buffet, and I have to just pick these, I have these two items, think of all the richness and flavor and experience that I'm missing. So if you are, you know, in my, my personal opinion, it's only my opinion, but if you, as a scientist, I want all the flavors of the scientific buffet informing the way I think about a phenomenon, because that will mean that I have a better understanding. It will mean that I'll have a more complex understanding. Yeah. And honestly, Teresa, I think it also means that I have to become very comfortable with discomfort of not having a finite, therefore, this is true, period, we're done. You know, yeah. there's, it's, it's uncomfortable when yeah. you, you don't have that certainty. Yeah. But if you can become comfortable with the discomfort, then what you actually have is a more robust and sophisticated understanding. And I'm all about that. Yeah. And I think that, again, this is another tension, right? For clinicians who have guidelines, right? Yeah. You are the best guess, but if you talk to anyone who's ever been inside of a, a, a guidelines, it's a political move. It's, yes. it's, 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 uh, it is it's guessing, a, a right? Yes. 
they're making the best guess they can based on what information they have. The yeah. people in guideline communities are the most nuanced. They do bring in quality, they do bring in quant, they do bring in their anecdote and their experience. And yep. all of that gets wrestled with and then turned into a very highly cited and very respected yes. document that people acknowledge where it comes from. But it's no different from a UN resolution. It yeah. has uh, yes. behind it and yep. you no know, like politics behind it there's a reason why we so discuss true. about conflicts of interest yep. and, and influence of pharma you know are they at the table did they sponsor people to fly there like these are all things and to see guidelines for what they are as, as political structures that are meant to help guide us to give us a sense of where to go and give us a little bit of a direction but to know that they are still human constructs that a bunch of people came together and decided in the best wisdom that they had and the best access of information that they had at the time. Acknowledging that is, is something that we have to, as a field, get over the fact that there's like an MCQ answer to yeah. every clinical question. And I think that yeah. obviously we do a disservice in med ed a little bit in health profession education because of the way that we sometimes test our trainees, right? Like if you have yeah. board exams and, and MOCOM, maintenance of competence, yes. uh, that's, that's all based on like there is a right answer, there are four options and you should pick one. Yeah. Obviously, there's a precedent that's then indoctrinated into generations of mm -hmm. learners that there's a right answer. And what it is, is that every clinician that's got experience will tell you there isn't really a right answer, right? And even if you look at what David Sackett wrote about EVM, like you have to bring the patient into it. It is about the context. It is about taking all of the information out there and then picking the right best choice with your patient as a clinician in the right context. And obviously in the US, you have a very different context with the costs and other savings. And in Canada, we don't have to worry about that as much. But all these things are wrestling at the same time and to acknowledge that it's much more complex and it's not so easy. And, and you're right. Yeah. I mean, I think the hierarchy of evidence is a heuristic, just like any other, that gets you when you're first getting started and just getting started with evidence-based medicine. Yes, one study, two studies, multiple studies. Yes, there is probably something to be said in that post-positivist kind of like framing that, yeah, as we get more information, as we reconcile them and com combine multiple studies that may contradict each other, that we'll get closer to the truth. And that theoretical basis for, I think, makes sense, right? And so I think there's a role to use it as a guiding, one of many guiding principles. But it doesn't mean that that's the only evidence that exists. And it doesn't mean mm -hmm. that you have to stop as a scientist once you've learned how to do meta-analysis, you've arrived. No, you also have to think about how you can now understand how to evaluate a clinical decision rule or yeah. how you think about diagnostic testing and how you think about what is a marker of rigor in qualitative research yeah. and how does the qualitative work then inform the next question that you have as a clinician, as a scientist in the field that you're in. Because if no one's using your diagnostic test because you have to jump on one foot five times in order to be able to do it and it's just not usable, well then guess what? Like it's, it's probably not going to be something that advances the field and improves patient care. Yeah. And so understanding those tensions I think is really important. You make it several interesting points, Teresa, and one of the ones I just want to reflect on for a minute is the idea that we all need starting points, and we all do need starting points. And when we are clinicians or researchers working in healthcare or health, health professions education, we have to start with the materials and context and studies and abilities that we have. But one of the things I would very much like to see is that recognizing that a starting point is also not an end point, mm -hmm. right? So if we start with our studies in this space, in these ways to think about this clinical presentation about this disease or this way of teaching in one way. Let's not decide that that's the only way and the best way. Let's decide that that's a way 
And that by bringing other voices, other perspectives, other ways of seeing and knowing to the phenomenon, that we are providing ourselves with different affordances. There is a very famous quote from a rhetorician called Kenneth Burke, and he always said that a way of seeing is also a way of not seeing. So every form of science enables you to see a phenomenon in one way, but it also hides other ways of seeing it, which is why you need to bring multiple kinds of ways of knowing, different kinds of perspectives to our scientific inquiry so that we can see the blind spots that we have. Different scientific approaches, different paradigms, different methodologies have different affordances. Those affordances let us see a phenomenon in a way that other ones won't. In my opinion, the multiplicity of that is the best foot forward that we can provide because it enables us to, to understand that, yeah, we might start over here, but that let me see X, but not any of the other letters of the alphabet. So I need to break out of that, use other approaches so that I can see it in its entirety. Yeah, I think about it as like, you know, the colored lenses or some people have, you know, different abilities with seeing color, right? Some people are tetrachromats so they can see all the colors and some people can't see yellow and blue differentiation. I think that as scientists, we sometimes train within traditions that only let us see red and blue, only let us see green and yellow. And actually what we should try to aim as we progress our careers. So maybe you don't do this in grad school. Maybe you do this when you're a faculty member, right? You right. explore the yeah. other technologies. You link up with other scientists. There's always more learning to be done after you've got yeah. your your MD, like you can, you can go and learn more. And so as you know, obviously a faculty developer, my plea to people is that, you know, like when you've arrived as an assistant professor or you're doing postdoctoral fellowship, that's when you should explore the other ways of knowing because then you will be a stronger scientist, right? The advent of quant versus qual, it's probably not of versus anymore. It's probably that yeah. you know both. Agreed. And even if you don't do both regularly, respecting and understanding and being inspired and knowing enough about how to judge and participate and read critically something from another tradition is actually really important to you as a clinician, as a researcher, as a scientist. Yeah. I think one of the most important points that we can do as faculty members and as members of a community who cares very much about clinical guidelines and best practices is to have a real diversity of voices at those tables mm -hmm. so that many different perspectives, many different affordances, methodologies, ways of seeing informs the way we go about treating or, or the, the guidelines that we create. Because that means that we're not myopic. As you said, we have all the colors of the spectrum that we see them. And even if we don't understand them fully, or even if we are more comfortable with one than another, that we, by having them all at the table, hopefully it will mean that the guidelines we produce will be more robust, will be a better representation of the complexity of it. And if nothing else, will provide us with a starting point that is applicable to a broader population. Yeah, I think we'll serve our patients or providers better if we have more diversity. And I think that that's, I mean, we're having this conversation in the social context, of course, of the Me Too era, of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that we are seeing the ramifications of ignoring segments of the population, not giving them voice, not giving them space. And so I guess my plea to those of us who are listening and engaging in this idea, how can we bring that equity, diversity, inclusion to all the walks of the life that we have, right? It's not just that you should have an EDI committee or you know, some kind of leadership position in your department. I think it's about how do we fold EDI into the ways that we, we do science? Because mm -hmm. I think that there are minority voices, like it's often, 
let's be honest, a lot of the feminist traditions, a lot of the feminized uh, sciences, sociology, anthropology, they've been marginalized historically. They're not part of the hierarchy of evidence. They don't even make it onto the triangle. And so what does that mean, right? Like when we set it up, it's probably not that it was with intention. It was a way to make a heuristic, but then now people have run with it in a way that I think now we can take a step back and say, well, how, how can we incorporate different perspectives in? How do we stop thinking of things as better or worse, but different? And I think we're seeing that in the rest of the way that we do business in all walks of life, whether it's, it's about selection of who to hire next or what leadership position is available to whom, or as complex as who's going to be at your table, at your guideline with inclusion of patient advocates and other kind of perspectives. One of the things that I've been reflecting on in this era that we're living in, Teresa, is that this has been a very challenging year, mm -hmm. a very challenging few years. I'm sure for some people it's been very challenging decades, yeah. right? But I think the thing that I hope personally that I come out of 2020 mm -hmm. is that if I come out of 2020 and all of my assumptions still hold true and I haven't changed any of them, shame on me. If I come out of 2020 and the practices that I held and, and supported and maintained haven't evolved, then shame on me. I feel that perhaps the most important thing we can do coming out of this year, for me anyway, is to take a really hard look at the things that I sort of took as my ways of doing and my ways of practice in all walks of life, in all aspects of my person, and to say, all right, embedded within the way I do this are assumptions and our ways of viewing and privilege. And what I hope that I do is then say, what can I do to dismantle that? What can I do to be better so that it's not the, the, the assumed truth that got us to this point, don't re retain the power, don't maintain being assumed truths. But right, as we said earlier, it's about becoming uncomfortable with that discomfort because it, it is uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable but, when yeah. you're just getting started. So if you're more junior, you're not going to be taking down the hierarchy right now. But it's about thinking about how you message what that hierarchy, quote unquote, hierarchy of evidence to your learners to say, look, it says hierarchy, but it's not really a hierarchy. Like we, we can be doing little gestures like that to explain that that's the name that it has. And that's how we see it in the literature. And yes, there's a lot of power dynamics. And you can kind of talk a little bit about how and why it was formed. But I think you can talk about and bring to your journal clubs and your discussions around things. You know, why does journal club only have to go through the user's guides on you know, diagnostic tests. Why not also look at the qualitative research user's guide and have people walk through how to critically appraise a qualitative paper because yeah. it's been written. We do one in our curriculum for emergency medicine. We actually have a module. I, I run it and, and we go through the co-rec checklist. And yes, checklists are a whole different thing we can get into another time for reporting. <laughs> But, but at least it opens up people's worlds in their first year of residency to say, like, this is another format and you have to also be comfortable with this, just like you would need to understand how to look at a new machine learning model and understand how to critically appraise that. Like, science yeah. is always changing, always yeah. evolving, and we need to stay on top of our game. And so, so the poor learners that have to listen to this, yes, we're always going to be moving the mark. We're always going to be advancing the field. And for all of us lifelong learners, we're like groaning because like, you're like, how am I going to learn about machine? learning algorithms <laughs> right? like that's that's that's, oh both, that's the nature. i know that's the nature i mean i had a good conversation with a colleague of mine who's an engineer working this space and we actually discovered that 
although at the time there was no user's guide for machine learning algorithms and AI, but there is now. It wasn't actually, you could actually just use the same questions from a clinical decision rule kind of paradigm and just say, look, it's the same questions. When you're a consumer of the research, you, you just have to basically look at it as a glorified, souped up decision rule, right? And so it's a tool to help you guide your decision and you need to know how it was derived, how it was validated, and then how it's going to impact your practice. And it's the same question. So at the core of it, things don't really change. Again, is it like, how did the, how did we come to know this is sort of the truth? How did we come to show that that is related to the truth in other ways, right? And so derived, validated, and then how does it impact on my particular case and presentation right now, right? And so I think that that's, that's at the core of it, what it is that we always have to do when we're looking at science. So thank you so much for this great conversation. Oh, Teresa, my pleasure. I always enjoy chatting with you. Thanks for having me. Wow, that was a really awesome first segment of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. And now on to our second segment. Hello, this is Teresa Chen, and I am excited here today to be here with one of my mentors, Dr. Jeff Norman. He is a world-renowned medical educator, someone who's done a lot of work in both medical education and health professions education at large, and he's an all-star researcher in this field. And I thought I'd like to just have some conversation with him about the founding of this field because it is a it's a relatively new field compared to some of the other fields that we have in basically the bigger scheme of things around medical sciences. It's not like biology or anatomy or biochemistry even. It's it's probably somewhat of a newer discipline that's popped up. And I thought I'd pick his brain a little bit about the history of this because I think it's something that most of us who trained since because of the great work that Jeff and his colleagues and and contemporaries have done take for granted the types of systems that we have now for medical education and how vastly different they are because of the work they all did. So Jeff, please uh, welcome to the podcast and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Hi, I'm Jeff Norman. One of my throwaway lines is that nothing at McMaster happened before my time. (laughs) <laughs> I've been around a very long time. Next year, I will celebrate 50 years in medical education research. To the extent that there's any history, it's kind of an oral history that's passed on from generation to generation. There are a few exceptions in terms of monographs and books that have been written about it, but nobody knows that they exist anyway. So I thought here's an opportunity for me at least to put down, not exactly in black and white, but at least record some of the early history because I'm one of the few survivors from that era. And let, let me do a little test to see how much you Latter-day Saints are on, on top of things. Teresa, where did medical education research begin? I actually have no idea. <laughs> That's something that I've always wanted to know. So I don't know if you, you can find out. Yeah. Believe it or not, medical education research began in Buffalo. Yes, that's Buffalo, right. Buffalo, Buffalo. Oh, wow. You thought they were only famous for chicken wings, right? Well, guess again. There's another set of founding fathers in medical education research, none of whom were McMaster. A guy named George Miller, who was an internist, and he looked like he could be an American diplomat. He was an incredibly handsome man. You know, grayish, pepperish hair, straight off straight back from his forehead, tall, lean, always incredibly well-dressed. Anyway, that was George Miller, and he put together the first medical education shop in Buffalo, New York, of all places, at SUNY. Very cool. I grew up in Niagara, so Buffalo, I spent a lot of time there, really close to here. And alongside him, he had his gang of thieves, uh, Steve Abramson, who was 
a PhD educator, Christine McGuire, who, like me, sort of wandered into the field because she had no other employment. She was an economist. Hilly Jason. Hilly Jason is a psychiatrist. And I said, the other two I said was, because they're long gone, as is George. Hilly Jason, bless his heart, is still alive and well and still active in medical education. He's at University of Miami. He's about 115 now. I'm exaggerating, but he's well into his 90s, and he's still doing it. I hope to be honest, but I'm not doing it when I'm in my 90s, if I make it that far. Anyway, that was the original crowd. And what happened was sometime in the 60s, they all dispersed. And Miller and McGuire went to Illinois, University of Illinois, Chicago, which is still one of the big shops. Jason went to Michigan State, and Abramson went to University of Southern California, where he met up with Howard Barrows. Name may be known to a few of you. Howard Barrows was the inventor of simulated patients, and he arrived in McMaster about 1970 or so. Many people credit him with, and Rick Newfeld with problem-based learning, and that's simply not the case. They proselytized it. They wrote a definitive paper in Journal of Medical Education about PBL, but they had nothing particularly to do with the original ideas, as I discussed yesterday. So if you look at the snapshot of medical education research in the 70s, let's say, there were three powerhouse shops, Michigan State, Illinois, and USC, all of whom directed their lineage right back to SUNY Buffalo. By the way, Sackett was doing residency at Buffalo at the same time that Miller was running the MedEd shop. And I don't think they were close friends, but they certainly were acquaintances. So it becomes a fairly small world. Anyway, let's see now, where do we go from there? At Michigan State, there were two other people who became very heavy leaders, uh, Lee Shulman, who I mentioned yesterday, and Arthur Elstein, who was a clinical psychologist. And Elstein and Shulman are both still around and I think somewhat active. If you take a snapshot of the Rhyme meetings, which go back to the late 60s, I think, you would see that a lot of the heavy lifting was done by those places, Illinois, California, Michigan State. And another fair chunk of it was done by the state licensing or the national licensing boards in the U.S., in particular, the National Board of Medical Examiners and the American Board of Internal Medicine. Clearly, the latter two groups did a huge amount of development work and assessment. Any study of medical education research will find that number one on the hit parade in terms of publications and all that is assessment. A number of years ago, a guy named Dave Swanson and I wrote a paper that appeared in the mainstream education journals basically pointing out that medical education research, because of all sorts of influences, by and large from the licensing and and certification requirements, was a way ahead of general education in terms of strategies for assessment. And very clearly, those two groups, national boards, American boards, did all sorts of really pioneering work in terms of developing assessment methods. So that's where the thing began. Europe marched to a different drummer. There was the Association of Medical Education Europe, pioneered by Ron Harden back in the 70s. And uh, many of you know Ron Harden is still incredibly active. He's a human dynamo. But that's where we all trace our roots. Now, many of the people who, like me, are looking rather long in the tooth, and uh, people tend to think of us as being sort of the grandfathers. We were actually the second generation. And I won't bother listing a long list of names from the second generation because none of them will be known to you, except perhaps me. At least I like to think so. So that was what it looked like. Most of the publications were coming out of Illinois, out of California, out of Michigan State. 
McMaster came on board in the 70s. McMaster, in advancing problem-based learning, also somehow recognized that research in the area would be terribly important in terms of ultimately validating the approach. And so quite early on, about, well, 1971 to be precise, they opened up something called the Program for Educational Development. The first director was Vic Neufeld, an internist, who had his degree from Michigan State. Round and round we go. And they went out to recruit some employees, and I was the first. I was basically unemployable, but I got fortunate that they took me off the hook. There were two other people whose names are long forgotten. And we were the, the original nexus for the educational research group at McMaster. The culture has changed really significantly. Back then, our mandate as PhDs or master's levels, social scientists or natural scientists or whatever we happen to be, we were told very clearly that your role was to help the clinicians answer their questions. And the clinicians had the really, really good questions, and you just show them how to do t-tests and how to design it, you know, factorial designs and control groups and all that sort of stuff. And we really had no business in generating questions. So that's the way it was. And if you look at my first decade, I don't think I was first author on much of anything, really, because I was the helper. Appropriately so, because I didn't know very much. And so I, much of my learning occurred on the job. That's what it looked like back then. Fast forward to, I don't know, 30 or so years. The, first of all, the first thing you notice, actually, if you move forward in time to now, the first thing you notice is that the field has hugely expanded, enormously expanded, unbelievably expanded. Let me just see. I've got a couple of graphs here that I just want to look at briefly. For example, the Amy meeting. The first Amy meetings invited a couple of hundred participants. The current Amy meeting has 4,500 participants. That's the European meeting. That's a big jump, eh? Yeah. Holy cow. My journal, Advances in Health Sciences Education, it started in 2000. No, it started about 1995. In 2004, we had 50 submissions a year. This year, we will top 1,000 submissions. Things have expanded hugely, enormously, and everywhere you look. I mean, my, the graph for advances is a little unusual because it's, it started within living memory, but all of the journals report this massive increase, which to some extent, makes the field difficult because it's harder and harder to get grants and it's harder and harder to get publications. The typical acceptance rate is now around 10% in the mainstream med-ed journals, which is getting embarrassingly close to JAMA and Lancet. Yeah, and so it's so competitive now. I mean, some of the national medical education grants are probably, even though they're much less amount of money, they're just as competitive as some of the big CHR grants. Yep, that's right. Um, it's, not, it's not an easy field. And what's happened is Certainly, it's, it's assumed legitimacy in that by any metric you care to name, like H indices and all that sort of stuff, the top people in our field are right up there with the top people in clinical research. What's happened is, is that, as I, as I mentioned initially, we were the helpmates for the clinicians, and there were very few clinicians who really were doing it as a hobby and as a passion. But they were, everybody knew everybody on a first-name basis. It was a small field. But then what happened is master's programs began at Michigan State and at Illinois. And I was, I got my master's from Michigan State in 1977. And so for those programs, far and away, the majority of them were health professionals who were trying to look for a field of research. And us PhD types were very much a minority. The consequence of that is that the field has expanded, I think, primarily 
on the basis of health professionals moving into the field. And the, the, the balance is tipped because as I've, I'm saying ad nauseum, I was in incredibly unskilled when I started. The current generation of full-time medical education scientists are incredibly skilled. They typically have degrees in a social or behavioral science with a supervisor who probably had feet in both camps, in his or her discipline and also in med ed. So people like Lorelei Lingard and Glenn Regeer and me, we, we really can claim to have a solid professional discipline at the PhD level, not me, but... And so what's happened is that basically we've moved from individual clinicians coming up with individual bright ideas to sustained research programs. Typically in the foreground or in the background is a medical education scientist who does, who does this full time. And clinicians have a somewhat different role as a member of a team rather than as a leader of a team. Now, of course, there are exceptions. Nobody could, you know, somebody like David Cook is always going to be the leader of a team. And there are a number of others, both locally and internationally. But nevertheless, the difference is there's a much more of a professional approach to things than there was back then, which is perhaps not surprising. But nevertheless, is there? it's much bigger and it's much more well-defined. It's much more professionally executed. Now, the one thing that I haven't mentioned, again, if you look at the statistics on medical education research, back then in the 70s, it was dominated almost totally by the Americans. Even in Europe, there was very little research being done. And the national meetings that were held in Europe were more social events than, than research events. Now it's not dominated by the U.S. The U.S. is number three in, in the hit parade. Number one and two very clearly, and are way ahead of everybody else. The U.S., the U.K., and so on are, Teresa, can you guess? The Netherlands and Canada. You got it. Canada's well out front in number one. The Netherlands is number two. And if you look at, again, any number of metrics, uh, Karolinska Prize winners, National Board's Hubbard Award winners, citation classics, top 10 on the hit parade in terms of articles, review articles, on and on it goes. Uh, numbers of publications, H indices, all of the above. Canada stands out number one, the Netherlands number two, and then there's everybody else. Now, Canada and the Netherlands are two very small countries in terms of population. Well, in terms of population and geography, they're somewhat different. But in terms of population, they're not heavy hitters at all. And in terms of things like Nobel Prizes, neither of us are heavy hitters. So what, what's going on here? A few years ago, a journal called Perspectives in Medical Education was just starting an English language version. And they asked me to write an editorial. Or, no, somebody had written an article saying how the Netherlands is number one, and you know, boy, are we ever good, and why is that? And they advanced a number of hypotheses. The only trouble was that uh, they weren't number one. They were number two. We were number one. And so I found myself reflecting on how could that happen? And strangely, of course, it's all conjecture. We can't do a randomized controlled trial of these kind of questions. So take this as conjecture, and in fact, take it as perhaps biased conjecture, because after all, I am a Canadian. But I think what happened is that essentially that dissemination thing, I didn't finish the story because starting about the 80s, McMaster started to dominate the North American scene. Of course, I was having PhDs coming through my shop so that we now have 10 PhDs across Canada who can basically, we're all trained at McMaster. And similar things were happening in the Netherlands. And the second school, problem-based school, was Maastricht. 
they had a huge medical education research show with like 25 faculty dating back to the 70s or 80s. And people whose names you may know, Case von der Flitten, Hank Schmidt, they too were high-powered PhD researchers. And they too started to disperse their students across the Netherlands and to some degree across the world, as we did. And if you look now you say, and, and trace back a little bit beyond the national identity, you can really find pretty strong links back to McMaster and Maastricht. And, of course, what's the common link? The innovation called problem-based learning. So even though I don't, I'm going to look into this, but I don't think there's much research done in problem-based learning these days. If you're doing it, you're doing it. And if you're not doing it, you're not doing it. And it's just kind of part of the background now. But nevertheless, I think the big impetus, the big kick in the past to get medical education research where it is, is problem-based learning, which originated in Maastricht and McMaster, and that in turn carried through to the present day where those two countries remain far away, far away, the key players in the scene. Not that there aren't others, and, and neither is a, neither Netherlands or Canada is a majority of things, but we're certainly a plurality. We're certainly number one and number two in just about any metric you care to name. One of the observations that I make from the outside as well, having having come into the scene a little later, might also be some of the funding. I mean, the Netherlands is really invested in hiring scientists of this field. And so is Canada, right? So there's a lot of centers across Canada that have dedicated medical education focus. And I think that that has to have some impact as well, right? Some of the... Yeah, I think you're quite right. In fact, the, the fiscal part is, is yet another part of the scenario. In the early days, there was we could get funding from places like the Office of Naval Research in the U.S. And certainly in Canada, I was funded personally, first by the Ontario Ministry of Health. They paid for my master's degree as well as for my first six years, I think, of faculty employment. And then by the National Health and Welfare, which became CIHR. Those funding sources have all dried up. Oh, the ACMC had a $100,000 a year of funding they gave away. But fortunately for us, Funding in Canada has still remained. It, 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 every five years or so, it mutates to one other source. But up until now, knock on wood, there's always somebody ready to pick up the reins and carry on. So, yes, we have opportunities for funding that, frankly, our American friends don't anymore. The other thing that's happened that doesn't get talked about, I don't think, is the influence of the healthcare system contrasting to Canada and the U.S. Because... American healthcare is massively driven, as everybody knows, by private enterprise in the form of HMOs. Well, HMOs certainly aren't interested in generalizability theory. And so Americans have enormous difficulty in getting any interest at all in terms of research and medical education and funding research. Furthermore, they, they have great difficulty finding time as clinicians to do it. And hiring non-clinicians because HMOs don't want to have a PhD hanging around doing sample size calculations. So the picture is frankly more complicated than I initially painted it to be. But of course, all of this interacts. I mean, why is it so popular in Canada? Well, because it does so well in Canada. And why does it do so well? Because it's so popular. It's definitely one of those feed-forward cycles, right? And you have successful scientists that go on to have successful proteges that go on to do great work, then the cycle continues. So it's, it's a, it can be a really good thing, right? So definitely the founding of a field can, uh, can expand just from one site in Buffalo. <laughs> so Jeff, reflecting on all of that, um, 
we've kind of explained that, you know, the first generation were clinicians who really had some questions about how medical education should, should or could be done, came along augmented by quite a few notable PhD scientists who carved out a niche in that area. Subsequently, kind of in that second wave, it sounds like that third wave of people are people who kind of trained in the discipline in the field of medical education, probably with a cross-disciplinary field of some other sort and, and really grounded themselves there. And I think that we're, we're probably marching our way up uh, back to the involvement of, of more kind of clinicians. Like I would think myself is one of them who aimed to do medical education, like from medical school. Like I, I'm probably a little precocious, but I wanted to do medical education research and scholarship and innovation since, since I was sitting in my first week of class at my med school. And so what do you think is the, the future for the field? When you have people that are like kind of gunning for medical education, I can't specialize in it. I had to pick a specialty that would let me do my medical education on the side, right? That's why I'm in emergency medicine. To what I was going to say, actually, yeah. because medical education research is the ultimate team game. Because on the one hand, people like myself and Lorelai and Glenn and Kevin and all those guys, on the one hand, all of us actually except me have a PhD in a discipline, which, which means that they've spent something like four undergraduate years and four graduate years doing nothing but studying cognitive psychology or rhetoric or whatever. And so although the discipline typically doesn't directly apply to medical education research, it remains a foundation and the lens through which they, they view the world. On the other hand, they can't begin to have the kind of depth of understanding of medicine, which is necessary in order to, even at the simplest level, develop materials. So they have a significant deficit in terms of the medical, of the medical education part. Conversely, people like yourself with master's degrees or PhDs, however much your passion, there's a couple of realities. One is I get to do it 40 or 50 hours a week. You get to do it four or five hours a week. I'm I'm sure in your case, I'm under-exaggerating. I know you work far harder than that on, on the research end. But the reality is that clinicians still are basically stuck with maintaining a clinical practice, which by and large is the majority of their waking hours. So it's very, very difficult for you folks to, first of all, you don't, you don't have and can't get the background because you can't, I suppose you could do an undergraduate degree in psychology way back when, uh, but most people tend to do, most people going for medicine end up doing biology instead. So on the one hand, you don't have the full-time PhD. And, you know, and obviously, full-time PhDs put in 60 hours a week. So you've, you've always got the disciplinary. You're a little bit psychology light or epidemiology light or whatever. On the other hand, we, have, we lack the medical background to really be able to pursue things in depth. And so the ideal situation is a working and ongoing team relationship. And nobody knows that better than you, Teresa. I mean, I think that you've, you've definitely role modeled that throughout your career with a lot of your clinician colleagues as well. So I think it takes people on both sides to reach across mm -hmm. and, and find the great questions together. It's about the great conversations, whether it's sometimes a, in a hotel lobby at an insane hour at a conference and you just stumble upon the right question, or mm -hmm. it could be in a boardroom where something just dawns on you and you text your friend. I think it's about having those networks and having colleagues that can support you and refine and just keep kicking that question down the street a little bit more until it just refines itself, right? So I think it's about that community around the question that you can build. And that's really cool that, to hear that that's kind of always been a little bit of an underpinning of MedEd. I think that that's what makes it such an exciting field. 
uh, that's why I'm still doing it. Those conversations are basically a, a very seductive drug, a very addictive drug. And to be honest, I'm having my annual review with our, our joint boss, Dr. Sherbinoff. The first question was, what can we do to advance your career? And I burst out laughing. It's over. It's done. There's nothing you can do now. But the last question is, what can we do differently to make things, you know, what are the significant problems? And to me, the COVID crisis just aggravated an existing situation, which is, you know, Zoom is just not the same as being there. And the kind of juices that flow when you're in a room together, and perhaps over a beer, just doesn't happen when you're staring at a computer terminal. I'm becoming de-skilled over the last year for all sorts of reasons, but one of which is because I get very little personal contact. I mean, I think that we have to find new ways to do it, and it'll be up to a new generation of people to think about how we continue to foster these collaborations. I've been trying to book times to, to just have a chat with people like I'm doing with you and think through big ideas and hold each other, you know, feet to the middle. And you're right, it's not exactly the same, but it's better than not, right? And so... Yeah. I mean, one of my speculations and as I lay awake at night, which I rarely do now, is just suppose COVID had happened 20 years ago before the internet. Oh, yeah. Talking about students studying at home, you know, the, the internet has facilitated so much of the communications to help us survive this pandemic. And without the internet, it would have been a much different scenario. You basically would have shut down the world's educational system. Full stop. No, it's definitely a very interesting time to be living through right now. So thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's great. Yeah. From, from the, uh, from the dis- distant past in some ways for medical education, at least, mm-hmm. and the origins all the way through to, to now in this post COVID era of how we're going to do business. So thank you for taking me through that short history of everything. <laughs> Maybe we can book another time to have another chat. Great. Thanks. Okay. Always enjoyable. Thanks, Teresa. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.